On a dark, murky night in a quiet New Mexico town in the 1950s, a basketball game, crowds, cheerleaders in sweaters, aliens, <laughs> question mark, <laughs> airbenders, <laughs> flying bison, <laughs> terrible special effects, M. Night Shyamalan. My goodness. The man whose name is never pronounced correctly? I'm surprised you didn't go full on Rod Serling. Why did you? Yeah, I, I think you've accused me of that so many times that I, I thought, okay, I've accidentally done this a bunch in the past, so I got to go a different route this time. In a small town. No, I can't do a Rod Serling. I can't do a Rod Serling. This is my life. As I say, for all the times you've accused me, I it. forget which voice you know that you think I do that you think sounds like Rod Serling. But... <laughs> Anyways, we're talking about a new movie release. It's not in theaters, but it's on Amazon Prime. We're also talking about a massive box office flop from what over a decade ago now. Pretty close. Pretty close. Pretty close. Pause for effect. <laughs> Did you want me to say something else about that? Exactly a decade ago. Like exactly a decade ago. And can you really... I don't know if you can really say that, that something that made $319 million was a box office flop. Can you say It was that? an abject failure on every level. <laughs> uh <laughs> Okay, maybe not that one level. It was just medi- a mediocre, uh, mild disappointment. <laughs> a big enough disappointment that uh, they never made any more. They never made another. Because they thought we didn't make enough money to make another one. Um. So <laughs> that's the intro. <laughs> Cue the theme music. Wow. What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. I'm Jake. I'm Paul. Welcome back inside our crazy brains. Man, it feels like our brains are getting increasingly crazy during this uh, during this lockdown. That was, I, I have to say, that was, of all the many great introductions you've done, that might not have been one of them. I'll, I'll uh, mark that down under constructive criticism. <laughs> Uh, you know, sometimes when you have these more subdued features, the inspiration doesn't come as readily. I understand. I understand. Uh, we're talking about uh, Amazon Prime's The Vast of Night, as well as Nickelodeon's <laughs> The Last Airbender. An in quiet indie drama. A quiet so, indie drama. And that's the last airbender. I don't know about the vast of night. That might be like a raucous metal, hardcore um, roller derby flick. Oh, if only that would have been pretty cool. Yeah. The vast of derby night. <laughs> I have never understood. Honestly, I have never understood the point of roller derby. How do you score points? What do you do? 
You just yeah. knock people over like fences, right? I mean, there's, pretty much there's some sort of racing involved. It's like some sort of tag team full contact racing, I believe. Yeah, it's it's all very confusing. Yeah, my problem is that I've literally only watched roller derby in two contexts. One was an episode of Psych where they were going undercover into a roller derby team. And of course, they weren't really caring about explaining the details, the finer points of roller derby scoring in that. It was just mostly an excuse to you know make fun of roller derby. Uh, and then the other context was there was this... Um, TV show with these two comedian brothers that ESPN ran for a couple of years. And they would just, it was essentially like a mystery science theater 3000 for obscure sports where these two comedian brothers, the Sklar brothers would watch these obscure, like old sports tapes highlights and just completely eviscerate them. them. That seems that seems unkind. I mean, I definitely want to watch it now. Yeah. It really does right. seem ungenerous. Right. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm sure that one of the sports they made fun of was curling, and curling's a great sport. Curling's an awesome sport. I could I could drink a beer and and do some curling. I could see myself doing that. Oh, you'd be a great sweeper. Yeah, you think so? Big sweeper. What What would make me a great sweeper? You know, I think just uh, just the idea of you moving the broom back and forth across the ice, it feels it feels sort of podcast-like in a way, you know? Mm. Lots of energy for very little payoff. No, 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 no. No, I think um, roller derby, I it seems like every single program I saw in the 1970s or 80s had some sort of reference to roller derby. You saw all these all these people just going around the, the arena – skating knocking each other off um i never understood it i i think i would like to go see a roller derby tournament one time and so i can understand the finer points i can't believe with all the advantages you had so much potential exposure to roller derby you never went and watched once no no i feel i feel like i missed out i feel like my childhood is not complete now well, for those of you that really want to uh, continue to be ignorant about roller derby, the Sklar Brothers TV show was on ESPN Classic, and it was called Cheap Seats. Cheap Seats. So, All right. I shall watch it. You can go watch their uh, watch their take on roller derby, um, <laughs> you which know has literally zero to do with anything else we're talking about on the show today. <laughs> literally nothing. Do you want me to take another step further? Here's a show yeah. that I'm sure that they covered on, on Cheap Seats. Yeah. Lumberjack competitions. Oh, for sure. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. Those were the best. Those were the best when I was a child. That was my first favorite sport, actually. Yeah. First favorite. Yeah. Running along those, you know how they, they would put the logs in the water and they would uh-huh. run against each other like there would be two people on the log and they would race. Who could stand up the longest. Exactly. Exactly. That was something I always wanted to do, and I have no idea how those people did it. It seemed very mysterious, almost magical. Those lumberjacks are magical. And to this day, Paul <laughs> still doesn't have the swimming pool in his backyard so he can practice. It's a it's a dead childhood dream of his. It truly is. It truly is. I remember, didn't, uh, didn't Charlie the Mountain Lion roll on a log in a lumberjacking context in the old Disney movie, Charlie the Cougar? You know, I haven't seen Charlie the Cougar. Well, 
Another feather in your cap. I know. <laughs> I thought you were a Disney file. <laughs> you know, actually, I just watched a Donald Duck cartoon last night, as a matter of fact. Chippendale, Donald Duck, something about acorns. And it had hockey in it. It might have been covered on cheap seats. Who knows? Well, if it wasn't curling, it wasn't on cheap seats. <laughs> uh, yeah, so. <laughs> so, reeling I mean, it back in. This is just going to be the show about nothing. And <laughs> we're just scrapping the regular topics. We're just going to keep following this this rabbit trail. I'm telling you, lumberjack competitions, they were the best. The best. Like, you know, it's something that's always bugged me since I became a teenager, you know, almost 20 years ago now, <laughs> was, uh, you know, I grew up on Chippendale. Yeah. And the Rescue Rangers, right? Yeah. Great show. And then, and then I became a teenager and I discovered SNL and watching the highlights of Chris Farley, where he auditions for Chippendales with Patrick Swayze. And that was a very different Chippendales than Chippendales Rescue Rangers. I'm like, which one came about first and how did they end up with the same name? This seems, this seems really sketchy. Yeah, that uh, seems really wrong. Yeah, because if you say Chippendales, like 50% of the time somebody could be referring to strip clubs and 50% of the time somebody could be referring to the animated chipmunks. Yeah. Hopefully those two will never, ever meet in some sort of, you know, combination Chippendales Chippendales thing that would be terrible yeah lord have mercy you do not want to see those little chipmunks and those shirtless and with the little bow ties I guess they already are shirtless but you know yeah is that why like, I, I just is, is it a chicken like which one you know like oh, there's certain deals like, the chipmunks came first right I, I, that's what I don't know I've never I've never wanted to search that I've never wanted to enter <laughs> that into my <laughs> that into is- my search bar, you know. <laughs> like there's other ones that are easier to check. Like fans, football fans have long wondered. Georgia, the Georgia Bulldogs and the Green Bay Packers have a very similar G. Yes, who had it first? Yes. Well, you can search for that. You're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna get flagged for any right. searches. On Your that. wife isn't gonna wonder out. why you're searching for male strip people, right? Yeah, and and just for the curious listener, the Packers had the G first. Oh, I was going to guess wrong. I, that was not my guess. Yeah, no, the Packers had it first, and then the Bulldogs asked if they could use it, and then they just flattened it a little bit. So they and changed the colors. So they really asked permission. They did well. Uh, my memory is slightly unclear on whether they asked for permission first or if they got caught and then were like, hey, <laughs> and then they were like, "Fine, whatever." It, one of those two things. But permission was asked at some point. They were willing to not use it. <laughs> All right. Um, but you know, I, I guess I'll never know about Chippendales and Chippendales. Yeah, no, no. I think that that's just an awkward thing. Maybe we can have, maybe one of our re- our listeners will actually uh, chime in and, and tell us. Maybe they've done searches on their own. Maybe it's Hopefully they haven't, but you know, if if by any accident you accidentally have covered Who this topic, to judge. please don't, please don't search for that though. Please don't do any original research at this point. I don't, I don't want to be on the hook for that. Uh, I, I, now we can go down the rabbit trail of why I think it's exploitation and how it fits into my day job. 
<laughs> maybe we should go back to the movies. Back to the movies. <laughs> okay, so we're going to abandon the show about nothing concept. And we're going to go back to our original programming. Hmm. I mean, that's, that is kind of fitting for the vast of night. You know what? So why don't we... Why don't we start with the vast well, okay, night? Okay, all right. Then we'll go to then we'll go to Hurt So Good, and we'll break down M Night Shyamalan's The Last Airbender, and then we'll do the most least important thing. The way we like Ready? to wrap up every single episode. The way we That's love to insane. wrap up every single little show of ours. <laughs> so uh, with that, here's our segue music for the vast of night. Into the void of out and about popular culture entertainment, where we used to go to concerts and movie premieres, ice cream socials. Basketball. Now we just have to basketball games. Now we just have to wait for streaming platforms like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon to deem us worthy of receiving a digital release. <laughs> In our case, Amazon Prime has just, over the last couple of days, released The Vast of Night. And that's our show. (laughs) I know Paul has nothing to say about The Vast of Night. You want me to chime in with with some clever stat or something like that? I could... It didn't have to be, yeah, you know, views or something, some data stuff. Amazon did indeed release The Vast of Night. It was an interesting strategy too, actually, Jake. I will I will tell you this because, um, you know, obviously there's not a lot that we can actually go to see in movie theaters, but drive-ins are still open. And Amazon actually released The Vast of Night to a bunch of drive-in theaters in advance of their Amazon premiere. Um, which is really fitting when you think about the show itself, because, you know, drive-in theaters are, are meant to be sort of this, they're, they're sort of a throwback to the 1950s, the 1960s. Um, not very many people have ever gone to a drive-in. I don't even know if you have, Jake, but, but they're sort I've of- I've driven by an old abandoned one. Oh my goodness, this makes me so sad. But, but- they they opened them up for for showing in a few drive-in theaters before they they landed on Amazon Prime and because this is such a throwback type of a movie it seems wholly appropriate. Yeah, because the movie itself overall doesn't not a pretty admirable job of dropping us back into the 1950s in terms of the feel of the town and even with the way they shoot the first third of the movie yeah. feels entirely as slow and plotting, but in a, in a unique way, not necessarily, I don't necessarily mean that as derogatory as it sounds. <laughs> it really did sound pretty derogatory. <laughs> the way they set up as slow and plotting, pretty boring. Yeah. It, it it feels like the way Garrison Keillor, I know he, that's not an appropriate reference anymore, but I'm making a historical reference here to like Garrison Keillor would set up Lake Wobegon, right? right? No, this feels this feels like Lake Wobegon in New Mexico. Wrong, wrong. No, no, I don't wrong? think so. it, 
here's here's the thing that one of the things that I really appreciated about this movie is and and I I sort of get what you're saying in in that it does you can't say that it takes its time because it's only a 90 minute long movie but the pacing is very deliberate I would say yeah and it feels very structured in a way so you do have you do have sort of a sense of that small town feel to it because it takes place in a really tiny town in New Mexico on the border of of, of Mexico called Cayuga I believe is what it is. Is that right, Jake? Um, I mean, some say Cayuga, some say Cayuga. Cayuga. Tomato, tomato, potato, potato. Native, I should know, but I do not. Yeah. Uh, it's this, uh, is from, this is from your your early 20s, right? <laughs> 1950s New Mexico? Yeah, that's exactly right. I was I was just a young whippersnapper. <laughs> no, no, I was negative 13 years old at this point. All right, all right. But it does feel more than Lake Wobegon because I think that Lake Wobegon feels very gentle. And this had at the very beginning, maybe sort of that small town gentleness, but I don't think it ever, once you got into the actual story, it felt almost like an old time radio drama. So the the story takes place. I'm not disagreeing with you there. I just want to say I was t- specifically talking about the first 15 minutes. Yeah. The first 15 minutes, you you meet the characters and they're essentially just walking through a gymnasium. They're talking with each other. It does feel very much like a small, small town. And one of the things that I loved about this movie is that it really takes a lot of... Um, a lot of cues from past entertainment. You know, the whole thing is set up as, as essentially this twilight zone type episode. It's paradox theater. Is that correct? Correct. Um, With a Rod Serling like narrator. Um, But when you, when you watch as the movie gets into the, the core drama, you find oddly that the characters are pretty stationary. You know, it makes it a very unusual sci-fi flick and that the good chunk of the movie is just people sitting down listening to other people talk. And in that sense, the way they have it set up, it feels almost like an old time radio drama where you could almost mm-hmm. turn off the picture and just listen to the words and it would still be just as effective. Paul says almost uh, as if he's he's serving up setting up a volleyball spike for me to say not just almost but literally (laughs) the movie literally at times shuts off the camera right right to to give you that sense to let you soak in the words that are being spoken on screen and of course i'm notorious on this in in our relationship for absolutely loathing when 2001 a space odyssey did that for minutes at a time uh, in this case, I felt like it was well used, uh, partially because I think, like you said, the movie itself comes in at about half the runtime of <laughs> 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, and also that there was actual, it was actually moving the plot along even as it did. And it was in the context of a radio show, quite literally. Right. Um, within the context of the story. And so... So that's interesting. I'm going to interrupt you there just because this this movie has gotten a lot of critical acclaim. But the things that sometimes when I've seen um, reviewers knock the movie, it is for those elements. Like you have the the fade to black, you have 
these scenes that seem to flash it rips you out of the the context of the movie actually and reminds you that this is all quote unquote an old black and white tv show there were some people that didn't like that but you you sort of went with it huh for the the radio portions in particular i did uh the tv i the tv portions certainly were jarring because they were few and far enough between that you had forgotten that that was sort of the setup and the premise. And so it was clear, it seemed like they clearly wanted you to remember, Oh, Hey, this is a TV show. And, but it, because they did that and they pulled back to that point of view, it, it did, it did take you out of some really intense moments, like in the middle act in particular for me, where, which I thought was the strength of this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't hate it to the level uh, that other people did, but it certainly was, um, it certainly was, it, it, it jarred you out of a rhythm. And so the question is, did they want you to feel that, to feel jarred uh, mm. or, or not? Uh, if they wanted you to feel that sort of jarring sensation that it worked quite well. Yeah, you know, it's it is an interesting thing and I've I've actually sort of gone back and forth with that. I I really liked the effect. Like I appreciated it. But part of that may be because I just see so many movies and this felt just very different. And when you watch as many movies as I do, sometime sometimes difference is good because it it, gives, it sort of shakes you out of your sense of complacency. And right. um for me, it was effective. I, I think that, that it was probably done. I can't speak for the directors, obviously, but I think it was done um, in essence to snap the audience back into being for what otherwise could be some fairly static shots of people running from house to house, uh, doing doing some other things that otherwise would feel in, in a low-budget production not particularly creative and might slow down the action because it was done in sort of that grainy black and white, you know, motif, you know, actually on a, on a television screen. I think, I think that it helped make those scenes fly along and it did, it did take you out of the moment, but ironically, I think it took you into the craft that was being done for this film. You know, that I definitely agree with out of the story, but into the film, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's there's multiple moments that I noticed in in the movie that this fits into where you can tell they are having some fun with the actual medium itself and right. with uh, and with the storytelling techniques and wanting to keep you off balance. Right. Um, and so that's where I, I ended up kind of landing that even though it was a bit jarring to me my sense was after the film was done that they wanted to do that because the first second and third act of this film are all paced quite differently from one right. another. Mm -hmm. And then the insertions where it comes to a full stop and the screen is completely black and you only hear someone talking very slowly to the, you know, pulling back to the black and white TV in the midst of some of these moments of action to uh, to the soundtrack and the cinematography on a long tracking shot as the right. shots tracking yeah. through the town yeah. and the music, you can't figure out what the music is doing. And I, I was watching with my wife and I was like, 
oh my gosh. I was like, oh my gosh, I love this because I don't know what to feel right now. It sounds like exciting, but also somber, but wait, fast paced, but slow, but uh, (laughs) am I supposed to feel intense or am I supposed to feel like curious and happy and whimsical all at the same time? Like it, the tone of the music was just kept you unsettled and kept you unsure. And as you look at the whole canvas of the film, you're like, oh, they did that. In, multi, in the soundtrack, in the cinematography, in the pacing of the different acts of the story. You're like, oh, I think this was all on purpose to yeah. keep us off balance as a viewer. That was one of the most interesting things about this movie. Getting back to your Wo- Lake Wobegon point, actually, is that it felt both comforting and unsettling. It was such a deeply um, fun movie to watch and yet it was gripping in the way that i think good sci-fi even good horror really is you were tense i found myself i the first time i watched it i actually watched it back to back because i watched it to review it and then i forced my entire family to watch it with me the next evening Um, nice because it, I, I really think that, and I'll just dip my hand now, I think that this is the best movie that I have seen during the coronavirus era. Um, I think it's the best movie that I've seen so far in 2020. Um, and, and one thing that I appreciated was just the the storytelling expertise that you see on hand. You have You have the ability, and I think this tracking shot is a perfect example of that. It leaves you unsettled, and yet it takes you through this this very small bucolic town in a way um, where you feel like you get to know it really well. Just just from that one tracking shot, it takes you into the gym. It shows you just these little tiny stands, zips you out. You get a sense of the geography of this right. little town, and yet it felt like it was even though you felt like you were at home in this town, you felt like you understood a little bit better because of that tracking shot, the way the tracking shot was done, it felt alien. It felt um, creepy. It felt, I kept thinking about, and and you see these tracking shots often, but it it made me think of the evil dead, you know, Sam Raimi's classic horror movie. I'm not sure if you've seen that, but they had a sort of similar tracking shot that you immediately think of for that. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately I thought that that to me um, was absolutely the strength of the film, but also uh, left me disappointed with the way it ended. And I don't, I don't think I want to get into spoilers in that regard. Um, But emotionally I, I did, I felt like the ending, um, did not pair with the rest of it the way I wanted it to. I I think we know this about me that I like the uncertainty and the kind of uncomfortable storytelling, which is what I appreciated so much uh, about a lot of it. Um, but I felt like they sort of abandoned it in the end. You know what is going on at the end. You just, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, and, and you're actually the second person who I've talked to today who had that exact same reaction. I I felt that it was, um, yeah, it didn't feel like it was quite of a piece with the rest of the movie. Um, the rest of the movie was so understated, so character-driven, so um, dialogue-driven. And then it has a moment that feels a little bit more typically um, blockbustery, if you will. 
and it doesn't last for long. And I think it ends satisfyingly for me, but I can understand why it would be a little bit jarring. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't ruin it. No, um, no, by any means. I still think it's worth watching. And, um, and because you don't, you still don't know what that, you know, ending is going to be, even if it wasn't what I particularly wanted. I think there are a lot of people that worked for them. And I wondered if too, part of it was my ignorance of other sci-fi of that type. Like um, I've never watched, you know, films like Close Encounter of the Third Kind, um, where I know you do see it end up seeing a whole lot more uh, uh, like in that film than maybe you do in something like Assigns. Right. Where it's all still very mysterious and kind of out of frame. Um, yeah. And things like that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting though, because as we're talking about it, 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 it feels like, although it felt a little bit out of place for the film itself, it felt very much of a piece of what you would find in a Twilight Zone episode. You know, I think that it would, Twilight Zone, I'm not sure how much you've watched Twilight Zone, Jake, but not it much. is fantastic. You need to watch every single episode now. Um, the, they they come together as just sort of these these half hour plays that are really constructed on just like this is on personality on the characters it has this central premise and it drives relentlessly to a conclusion and that conclusion is usually fairly bold like i i think i know what you're talking about where you would like to have that enigmatic end in the Twilight Zone, typically, and, and those shows that, that did that sort of thing, you typically had like a bop bop bomb end. You know, you knew what had sort of happened, even if it was sort of enigmatic in, 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 this, in the character of it, the scope left you wanting to tune in for that next episode. And, and I think maybe that was the, epi- the, the effort here. Yeah, was, uh, that was going to kind of be my question as, I, as we sort of landed it was, did you feel like this was as much an homage to the Twilight Zone as it was to the 1950s? Yeah, I think so. I think this was this felt very much of a piece with a good Twilight Zone episode, also three times as long. Um, and again, I I go back to the idea of of old time radio drama. I I am a I'm kind of a wonk when it comes to to some of those old spooky radio shows, The Shadow, or you know what have you, Mystery Science Theater. Lights out. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And because of the concentration that this show had on the dialogue, how riveting that scene was where the the kids were talking with this old lady who had oh my experience. It was one of the most riveting scenes that I've seen in the last couple of years. And yet nothing, absolutely nothing happened. Right. It just shows a good understanding of how to tell a really good story. I think. Yeah. The, the, I would say, you know, even in spite of me wanting a slightly different ending, the way this film ends up building tension and, and drawing you in as a viewer uh, with the dialogue, with the storytelling, I was as riveted as I've been, as I can remember being in a film in recent years. Like I was locked in. I was not thinking about anything else. I wasn't distracted by, Oh, did I get a text? Do I want a snack? Do I need to go get a drink? Like 
I was there for a moment and, and like to the point where when it finally, when they finally let the tension burst just a little bit, I was like, Whoa, they had me. (laughs) Yeah. This was it. This was what I was focused on. I was, I was theirs. Yeah. No, it, it, and just, right. (laughs) It was really amazing. Just to echo your point, you know, I was, I was watching it for the first time on my computer screen, right? It's not the ideal way to watch a movie, but I get the stuff that I need to for my review. I can check off all the bad words. I can see what's happening. I can get a sense of the plot. And But there's a lot of distractions. And usually I'm usually when I'm watching shows or TV, you know, movies, sometimes I might be standing up to type my notes. I might be um, just sort of leaning back. I'm hearing outside noises. With this one, progressively, like every five minutes, I found myself taking, wanting to take a step deeper into the story. I put in my headphones. I turned on <laughs> canceling stuff so I couldn't hear anything else around. I blew up the picture as wide as it could go. I was literally sitting on the edge of my seat, leaning in to pay close attention to this movie. And that's something that I don't usually do. I, I, and again, it's a, it's a, it's a tribute to the storytelling of this, this show. Yeah. This is really good understated sci-fi and relatively accessible to those who tend to get scared off of sci-fi. That's got too much gore or uh, you know, harsh language or sexuality like that stuff just doesn't show up here yeah there's an errant an errant word or two here or there but it really feels like a very pg without feeling sanitized right right like, you know there's a pg that feels like it's been sanitized this doesn't feel like this exactly. this just feels like good old-fashioned storytelling couldn't agree with you more yeah there you have it the vast of night it's available on Amazon Prime, an Amazon Prime subscription near you. If you're borrowing one from a friend or a family member, <laughs> it's there as well. <laughs> so responsibly gather yourselves and have a good old-fashioned sci-fi movie night. I tell you what, it's almost reason to get Amazon Prime. Honestly, it is just, it's rare that I can actually, when we do a show like this, it's rare that I can say, you know what? You will probably like this movie. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter whether you like superheroes or like horror or anything. It's just a pretty good movie. There you have it. And now it's time for a very bad movie. <laughs> All right. Time for some Hurt So Good. Paul and I taking the bruises of bad filmmaking wow. so we can tell you whether or not you should. Man, oh man. This was this was a bad movie. This was a bad movie. We, we can just start there. <laughs> uh, we watched The Last Airbender. The Last Airbender. An M. Night Shyamalan joint from 2010. Based on a Nickelodeon animated cartoon series called Avatar The Last Airbender. And uh, Paul, like I said, I'm just going to start at the very end, at the very beginning. This film does not hurt so good. 
<laughs> it really doesn't. <laughs> like I'm afraid that as we joke about it and we as we talk about it, we might end up making it sound like it hurts so good. So I just want to be very clear from the get go. This movie is just bad. Yeah. Okay. So just to give you a little bit of perspective, the last movie that we did hurt so good with was with our very good friend, Tim Nestor, Pulgasari. Yes. A North Korean 1980s Godzilla-like monster movie that was absolutely ridiculous and you and Tim hated to high heaven. I would rather watch Pulgasari than The Last Airbender. Absolutely. It does hurt so good. It's one you can love to hate and look at all the terrible decisions and ridiculous sound effects and special effects and story choices and plot holes. And, you know, just that you're just like, I like watching a bad movie and that's a good, bad movie to watch this one. I was just irritated the entire time. You know, the thing about this movie, the thing that strikes me about this movie, especially after we've just finished talking about the best of night is how polar opposite these movies are. You've got The Vast of Night, which is this small-budget sci-fi film that leans hard into the storytelling. The Last Airbender feels like a movie that was completely predicated on starting a franchise and bad CGI and all of the excesses that go with that. It it really feels like a cynical movie. A, a cynical movie that really didn't have anything to say. And it anybody who dislikes modern day blockbusters, this is like example A1 of why that formula can be so horrible, right? Yeah. Which is really too bad because I have to out myself here and say like I'm a big fan of the animated series. Have you watched it, Paul? I have. Yes, and it it's very good. It's really, really good. Like yeah. surprisingly good. You know, it, you're like, it's a Nickelodeon kids show. Like I've seen Nickelodeon. No, you haven't seen Nickelodeon kids shows. Avatar The Last Airbender is legitimately one of the better cartoon series, animated series you can find out there. Like the voice acting is all really good. It finds a really unique balance for a kids show of dealing with some heavy themes with death and loss and grief um, and evil, as well as, you know, finding ridiculous ways to get laughs um, and to be slapstick and to be lighthearted and hopeful and optimistic and to be very character driven for a kid's TV show. Like to the point where my wife is actually rewatching it with my kids right now because they haven't seen it before. She and I watched it previously. And like, it's so character driven to the point where she's like, you know, there's episodes where they don't advance the plot at all. They just, you know, take a moment to spend time on these characters. And you're like, you're not moving the plot forward. What's going on? And it's like, but I love these characters. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, it, it really took the movie. And here's, here's the thing that's really disappointing. I really like M. Night Shyamalan. I will always be an M. Night Shyamalan apologist. I thought that Sixth Sense was great. I thought that that Signs was fantastic. I thought that The Village was just fine. I I think he's a pretty good movie maker. And I you're conveniently ignoring all of the other evidence, but I know you're getting to the Last Airbender, so maybe you'll justify yourself there. <laughs> but yeah, this this felt very 
un M Night Shyamalanish, like like all the things that he does well in like his best movies. I would say The Sixth Sense, um, Signs. He he takes these really. He actually does what they did in The Vast of Night. He takes these this very concentrated story, concentrates on the characters, gives you some suspense, and unspools a really satisfying um, tale. This one, you had no character, really, in any of the characters you meet. The dialogue was horrible. The, it, it just felt like... It felt like the whole movie was eaten up by a CGI monster and and never given up. It was never spit out by that that monster. And it was just, it turned out to be just a nightmare. Um, and, and it lost everything that I think made the television series so good. The characterizations, it, it lost all of its fun. It lost the coherency of the story. You didn't know what was really going on in the movie very much. Right. Yeah. I, I almost forgot, you know, what the point even was until then they would have these really bad expositional dialogue scenes like, well, you remember because of this, that this is going to happen. And on this date, that's, and this is why we're doing X. And you're like, oh, all right, well, uh, I don't care. And you literally just spelled it out instead of actually developing a storyline. Yeah, it was just, it was really a nightmare. I think, I think the worst part of it was the the two characters from the Southern Water Kingdom, Katara and Sokka. Good heavens. Did How did they... I know that they're young actors. I'm sure they've done other fantastic things. But man, they were both terrible in this movie. Sokka, I just wanted to pound his face in with some sort of fat. I just... <laughs> he just... Yeah, it, me nuts. They're a great example of how this movie failed both the fans of the TV show and those who had never seen the TV show in that their performances were so bad that you can't even connect with them. Like, you know that a, a movie version is going to have to condense stuff, right? So you can make allowances for changes and tweaks in character to advance, you know, to speed up the storyline, all those sorts of things. But these characters completely fail at that you know the girl that plays katara ends up feeling like a junior version of Kristen stewart who just like grimaces and like squints through the whole movie and stewart bad christian stewart (laughs) (laughs) and and then yeah the brother like he's inexplicably in the show he's like two years older than his sister in this movie he's a full-blown 10 to 15 years older yeah than his sister and he also just has is completely flat no personality no sense of humor he's one of the funniest characters in the show cartoon yeah and and so again it it ends up letting down both those who are fans of the show as well as just being completely uninteresting to those who've never seen it honestly when i've walked through the produce aisle at, at king supers here I see vegetables with more personality than those two. I mean, it's just, it is just, it literally is hard to watch. It is hard to watch what I think that it, it it almost feels like they're aliens from another world trying to mimic some expressions that humans actually make and just not succeeding very well. I just, Oh my goodness. It yeah, it just makes you mad at every turn. There were literally times where I sat there on the couch by myself just like, "Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> what is happening? Like who 
who makes this decision? Like, I was literally irritated out loud. I-O-L. At the, the choices. Like, it's just so, like, yeah, you're right. It sounds like, it, to me, it felt like, you know how the aliens from Galaxy Quest modeled all their spaceship stuff? <laughs> yeah. or, and then they have these completely wooden, like, representations that are technically accurate but way off. Like, yeah. that's what this film is. It's technically hitting these things like, yeah, we spent a bunch of money on the special effects. We spent a bunch of money on the marketing. We got, you know, these, we got a couple of name people to play some characters. We slapped in some great special effects. And except then, except you're all terrible at doing those things. So the yeah. special effects don't work. The acting doesn't work. The script's terrible. And it all just falls flat. Yeah, yeah. You, you've, you've heard, I'm sure, of the term Uncanny Valley, the idea of yeah. computer-generated creatures that, that because they're they're very, very close, but just not close enough. And so because of their their closeness, they, they feel really creepy. These are the first two humans in terms of the people <laughs> who played Katara and Sokka who landed in Uncanny Valley, where they just, they're almost human, but just not quite. And, you know, I looked up a bunch of trivia about this to have something to talk about because I was like, this is just so bad. I need to have some talking points. The guy that played Sokka, or as it's pronounced in the movie, Soka. Soka. It's not even pronounced the same as they do it in the show. Uh, he beat out Jesse McCartney for that role. <laughs> really? So obviously there was a lot of competition for – a lot of quality competition for that role. And then I also looked up the, the background on the girl – who played Katara and she is like the child, like the child of uber rich parents oh. and is, was not like an accomplished actress. She just, her parents are like mega wealthy. And so we know how, yeah, clearly that, that can be the only reason she got that role. But then, but then <laughs> this throws it way off and just blows your mind even more. I forgot about this. Do you know, that the kid that played the main character, the last airbender, the linchpin of your entire three movie series had literally never done any acting ever before in his entire life. I had heard that. I heard that they sent him off to acting boot camp. Is that right? Yeah. Because yeah. he was literally a, a 10, you know, 10 year old kid from Texas who happened to do some martial arts and his friends were like, Hey, you should send in a videotape to the people casting of you doing martial arts. And they just cast him off that. And and honestly, he was one of the highlights. I did not hate him like oh, I did I most of the him. other characters. <laughs> I couldn't stand him. Like, no offense to him as a human being, but like See, you can yeah. just it's bad. Compared to his compared to his associates on this great adventure, I thought he was definitely bearable. And and maybe I'm I'm I have a have a soft spot in my heart for him because I think once upon a time when the movie was first out, I had a chance to interview him. We didn't, maybe because we had a premonition that it was going to be a really terrible movie. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think, ah, oh, he was 12 years old. He's doing the best he can. Sure. Yeah, you can forgive him a little bit more since he didn't have the chops, right? right? Versus some of the other people in this film who have been around for a while. You're like, you could have done better. Well, like M. Night Shyamalan, you would think he yeah. would have done better. Yeah. Uh, you know, Dev Patel, he, he's serviceable in his role. You know, he makes the most out of what he's given. Uh, but it it's a sign of, of how bad this movie is, is that someone as likable and as good 
as Dev Patel is typically comes across as as pretty flat and pretty unlikable and just you think oh this guy does this guy doesn't have a future never mind slumdog billionaire never mind lion <laughs> you know you just think i'll roll it all away again <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, the one acting high point i thought actually was general Eero. is that his name well that's how they again that's how they pronounce it in the movie in the show they pronounce it iro ah gotcha sean Tobb. He actually, I liked him quite a bit in this movie. I thought that he was he was one of the the passably human people that we meet here. He played uh, Zuko's uncle, and so he had sort of a little bit more complexity in some right. ways because he's this good guy serving a bad army, essentially. Right. He was one. He was one of the few parts of the film that you thought that I thought at least. If I separate myself from what like why I'm upset about how they did his character different than it is in the show, which they completely just miss, not completely, but like 90% miss. He did it. You're right. He did a good job. He, he got at least some complexity into the movie where there was very little precious little else to be found. Yeah. Uh, so if I, if I could remove my fandom of the show, then I'm like, all right, he did. Okay. Then you, then you're like, but he's not the, that character is so yeah. great in the show. Yeah. You're like they, they just don't do it justice. So you're like, you tried, you tried, but no. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got a question for you, Jake, because I, I have watched several episodes of the show, but I've never made it through like the whole series. Um, and so I'm not exactly sure. I, I know that originally they were planning to do three airbender movies, right? One yep. based on each season. Did this right. first movie actually reflect what happened in the first season? It, it like outside of them inexplicably, some inexplicable decisions overall, it does largely mirror. And I think that ends up being part of its problem with exposition and story is that it tries to take like a 20 episode season and shove it into a two hour movie. Yeah. Um, Because there's a lot of parts that they're like, well, they're technically hitting the story beats from the show. Um, But like completely missing the richness thereof. So there's, there's, I guess it's tokenism. Right. And in, in that like, it's like, well, we got to hit this plate. We got to hit this story point and hit this story point and hit this story point. So like they condense and, and they actually include a lot of the story points in it. Um, so it's technically accurate in many ways, but it is so far off in terms of how it actually does the rest of it. Yeah. You know, again, getting back to The Vast of Night, I think it's a great illustration of, of quote unquote, the magic of storytelling, you know, because you have in The Last Airbender, you have this story that we know works. The story works, but because of how it manifested itself on screen, even though they hit all the points that they theoretically needed to hit, it didn't it didn't translate. It just didn't work. It felt like a it felt like Van Gogh done in paint by numbers. And yeah. when you have something like The Vast of Night, you have this very simple story that would feel on paper, it wouldn't work. You don't have any car chase scene. Well, you do have one car chase scene, but you ha- you don't have any explosions, you don't have any any wild violence, you don't have any of the ingredients that you think would make a strong blockbuster type of movie. But because of the intention 
the intentionality that the directors and the creators brought to the actual story, it works so well. It's, it's, I think it's a great illustration that these two movies are a great illustration on why you need good storytellers telling good stories. Yeah. I uh, couldn't agree more. So there you have it. <laughs> on this on this episode, we've given you one movie to watch and one to avoid, like COVID nineteen. Like even if you, <laughs> yeah, even if you like bad movies, this is not one to watch. It's not. It really, really is not. But you know, they recently released the animated series onto Netflix. That was partly the inspiration for covering this one in Heard So Good. Was hey. The animated show is really good, and I heard the movie was trash. Let's see how trash it is. <laughs> it was a good choice, Jake, but a bad movie. Yeah, not it was not trash enough, sadly. <laughs> Sorry, M. Knight. You failed again. Oh man. He makes not he true. can make such good stuff too. Yeah, it's amazing when you have directors. I know we're all gonna have hits and misses, right? But he his highs and lows are just it's crazy. Like, they're quite stunning. It doesn't seem like there's much middle ground with him. No, no. And I, admittedly, I have not seen The Lady in the Water. I have not seen some of his worse movies. But I, I still have faith. I still have hopes that one day he will get back to the pinnacle of what he can do. Well, a lot of people like Split, right? I never saw Split, but... Split was all right. I mean, it was just fine. I, th- I uh... so Maybe that's his middle ground. That is his middle ground. I mean, because Sixth Sense, that was a great, fantastic movie. Just talking about it makes me want to watch it again. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Last Airbender, not so much. Sixth Sense combined with The Last Airbender, that's a movie I'd watch. I don't, that would be a Franken-Monster of a movie. That'd be... We'll have to see if we can come up with some sort of Franken-Monster show, like, segment concept where we combine... <laughs> ridiculous combinations of movies and somehow do something with that. (laughs) But until we do that, it's time for the most least important thing. Here we are. We've arrived. The most least important thing the part of the show, and it's the way we love to wrap up every single little show of ours, the part of the show where you never know what direction we're going to go. We could go uproariously ridiculous, or we could go somber, and make you feel sad, and stoic, depressed. Which direction are we going to go today? I don't know. <laughs> maybe I do. Maybe I don't. Uh, I guess, I, you know... Here we go. We'll 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 maintain the surprise for one of us, and I'll start, and then we'll see All what right. Paul does, whether he All takes right. us up or down. <laughs> uh, I did have to, like mine started started thinking about it in a light moment, but is involving a dark topic. Uh, my wife and I have been rewatching Community because that's also on Netflix. Uh, fun little show. Fun little show on there. It's no part correct, but it does have its 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 moments for sure. Sorry, yeah, one of the greatest meta shows of all time. If you're into meta humor, like there there might not be a better meta show out there than Community. Uh, part of that is you know 
represented in the extreme characters that it builds. And as I've been rewatching community, I've been struck by how much not only still feels relevant to today. I mean, admittedly it came out, what, about 10 years ago, a little over, uh, but how it actually feels more relevant to today and things that seemed extreme, like, like they were meant as extreme caricatures uh, and to be melodramatic, melodramatic at the time now feel like not that far off the truth. <laughs> and in particular, uh, the character of Pierce Hawthorne, I was talking about who's played by Chevy, Chevy Chase in the movie, in the show, uh, who's this, you know, fading, uh, trust fund, multimillionaire, pompous, racist, sexist, classist, struggling to fit in, struggling to find meaning in his universe, struggling to deal with trauma that he's suppressed his entire life, uh, and then manifesting in really bad behavior, right, with his group of friends and in this community college context. And um, it's not as funny now when we see the stuff when like on the other side of the cultural spectrum, when we step away from the laughs to see hold hold on, like this, this type of attitude is still persisting and it's not actually, it's, it's quite destructive. And I think community ultimately ends up finding, you know, let it, that character literally consumes himself and destroys himself within the context of the show. And it seems as we watch a lot of the cultural dialogue around race in particular right now, in the wake of shootings, in the wake of, you know, the murder of people like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, um, that we're seeing in some ways uh, a certain group within our cultural context who is consuming and destructing upon itself even in how it just responds uh, in these moments, let alone how it perpetrates these moments. And it was a a stark reminder of something that felt like a caricature then that feels a lot less like a caricature now. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like in retrospect, it almost feels like um, it's too close. It's too soon. It's and feel- take it too lightly. Yeah. Yeah, and we're definitely in a in a frustrating, sad, terrifying, discouraging time. You know, I think that um, you see some of the news stories that are going on. I'm I'm kind of a history buff, and so I, I've been reading a lot about. Um, the Civil War and Reconstruction and how Reconstruction went so horribly wrong and instituted so many of the of the attitudes that I think um, have really borne bitter fruit over the last 150 years. You know, I think that that a lot of a lot of those really destructive attitudes. Uh, racial attitudes that that we're still dealing with today stem from, you know, the reconstruction period and before. And it's staggering to me how um how much work still has to be done. Yeah. You know, I think that that you look at um 
just the environment that we're in and you see the horrific things going down and, and, you know, of course there's no, there's no, you don't want rioting. You don't want looting. These are all terrible things. Let's, let's not say that these are good things, but you can understand in the context of the full story, why they happen. And I think that, that it's, it just takes, there's just a lot of need for racial reconciliation and trust building and the idea of, of finding some sort of, some sort of place for hope. You know, I think it, it, and you're right. I think just to get back to the whole community thing, I think that, that those characters that sort of embodied that, even though that's their role is to shine a light of humor on these, these bad attitudes, they can feel, they can feel less funny in the context when we're so, so close to it. Yeah. And it, it begs the question, and I don't know where I land on this. I think I still probably land on there being a value to it because hopefully it will become accessible to somebody and, and be a, you know, I think the strength of a show like community is the way it shows people forging through that type of prejudice and that type of hatred without condoning it, without turning a blind eye to it, without um, just wink, wink, nudge, nudging it. Um, But somehow still forging to try to find that hope and to try to find positive relationships and community. Like I think that, you know, it ultimately is in the name of the show, but it does make you wonder like at what point, you know, where is that line where maybe our, our, maybe we made too light of it, (coughs) excuse me, um, to a point where it wasn't helpful and where we, we made it look too, too much like a non-issue, right? Instead of showing it for how truly serious it was. Like, I think it's a fine line that comedy has to walk in that regard. And I know it's, I know that it's a struggle. I mean, we've talked about it on this show, even with something like Get Out, where Jordan Peele had to literally, he literally changed the ending of his movie because he felt like, no, I need, I need to, you know, he made a dark comedy and Get Out. And he's like, I need this to end differently. Um, you know, I, I, the line moved for him in a matter of a couple of months because of the re, the context of real life. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think it's just a, an, a sobering thing to think through as storytellers, especially when we want to use comedy, like comedy can play a role to cut through some really dark stuff. And that's there, you yeah. know, there are many dark comedies that have done a good job at that. Um, but it definitely makes me question you know, where that line is and, and when do we need to, to stop making the jokes and to start, you know, telling, telling hard truths without the laughter for a moment? Well, it's a really difficult thing because I think that sometimes the only way people can process those hard truths are through jokes, right? Right. I mean, I think that, that, that oftentimes humor, um, and I feel like I've found this in, not only what I try to do, but how I perceive certain things, humor allows some of those lessons to go down easier. They hit a different spot in your psyche that allows you to absorb them better. And it can be really, it is a really fine line. It's a very difficult line. And I think the, the thing that you need to have for humor to work 
is the ability to to be able to turn turn the humor on yourself and be able to laugh at yourself. And I think that we live in a time where we all take ourselves really, really seriously. And because of that, I think that humor loses in some ways its effectiveness. Um, we all we all just need to learn how to how to how to laugh at ourselves and to to be able to to deal with when you look at some of the world around us, it's ludicrous. It's a ludicrous, crazy world. And oftentimes that's a really terrible place to be. But when we can laugh at ourselves, I think that allows us to look at the world a little bit more with a clearer eye and to be laughing at some of the things that take place in it. And hopefully through that laughter, figure out new ways to solve some of these huge problems that, uh, that we're dealing with. Yeah. All right. Now we see where Paul takes us. Oh man. That was so depressing, Jake. So depressing. I also have, you know what I have in some ways an interesting story slash rebuke. Okay. For you. Rebuking me. All right. Rebuking you. Because you know, on this very show, you have given me sometimes a hard time for alphabetizing my book in Skyrim. That's right. To the point where Paul passive aggressively retaliated by logging into the show as Skyrim librarian. (laughs) I bring to you the story of Shirley Curry, otherwise known as Skyrim Grandma. (laughs) That's her username? That is her, her username. She is 86 years old. She plays Skyrim constantly. And she has this uh, YouTube stream that, that goes out to 842,000 subscribers. Oh, That's 842,000. Skyrim Grandma. She is talking about actually hanging up her webcam and not streaming any more of her of her gaming sessions because she has gotten criticism from people who tell her how to play Skyrim. Oh. How she should be able to play Skyrim better. You know, oh. it's it's very Poor sad. Grandma Skyrim. Yeah. She says <laughs> this is from Cracked. This isn't just mansplaining. Of it is grandsplaining, and Curry can't take it anymore. Oh. So, yeah, it's it's kind of sad. I don't have to be reminded and told all the time which games to play. I look at all the games. I'm a gamer. If I wanted to play them, I would be playing them, she says. Um, so so to me, I think that it's sad when, when someone like Skyrim Grandma almost decides to give up her public persona because of criticism from other people. Just let her play the game the way she wants to play it. Let me alphabetize my books the way I want to alphabetize oh, them. Absolutely, Paul. I would never tell you how to play the game. <laughs> I may mercilessly and relentlessly mock you for how you play the game, but I would never tell you to play a different way. I would never presume to tell you that you should not do that. I just reserve the right to mock you for doing it that way. 
I did officially just alphabetize my books, by the way. I have a whole shelf for, for the Wolf Kring Queen saga because I'm missing one volume and I need to save space for it. Mm, see? And you know what? That's something I appreciate about Paul. Uh, <laughs> his attention to the minutia. Things that other people just wouldn't care about. You know, I I just would have passed on by that bookshelf and let it collect virtual dust. Oh, Tiny little God. pixelated polygons for potentially centuries within the Skyrim timeline. And Paul is dutifully taking care of them. Like we need all types. You know, that's what I'm saying. You know, I may not be a Skyrim librarian, but it doesn't mean that they shouldn't exist. So, you know, I'm, I'm still collecting every single book that I find because yeah. I have to populate the rest of my bookshelf. So yeah. I need to have all of my bookshelves filled. All Do of you know, them. like, have you done like done deep dives on Reddit threads to see like, what the exact number of available books are in Skyrim. Like you got to catch them all or. Yeah. You know, so here's, (laughs) I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I think, I think there are 380 books available in Skyrim. The Mm. library, if you build your library in the hearts fire extension, (laughs) you only have bookshelf space for 308 of those books. What? So yeah. So what am I going to do? Well, are you playing on PC? No, no, no. I'm playing on a PS4. Oh, I was going to say, I have to imagine that on the PC build that there's a mod that you could install that would allow you to expand your bookshelf by an extra 72 spaces. (laughs) Well, that would be nice. That would be nice. If somebody is aware of that, please, please contact the show because we'll get Paul on the PC build so he can expand his bookshelf. I'll send out a screenshot of my bookshelf to everybody. It'll be great. I am very excited for this. Uh, Paul has hidden his secret library away from me for a long time. <laughs> Afraid of my mockery. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, just my deeply masked jealousy. Of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> because you don't have the ability to, to alphabetize like I do. That's right. I don't even own the game, you know, so. Oh, really sad that's really sad. excluded i can't participate and even if i could i would be off you know protecting the land from mountain giants and trolls and pish just go with my vorpal blade going swicker snicker snack yeah no no vorpal blade next no next, vorpal blade? next next playthrough i'm actually going to do yeah they don't have vorpal blades in skyrim what are you talking about why so, not i bet there's a mod for that so next playthrough, going for the Dewey Decimal System. Ah, uh, yeah. Do you keep do you keep multiple saves? Does it allow you to keep multiple saves so you can visit yes. your differently organized bookshelves whenever you want? Oh no, no, I don't bother with that. You gotta you gotta get the bookshelf done. So you oh, you hit it, it, you hit it, and quit it. Well, once I do it, I'm still collecting books. I've still got more books to collect. I've got. You know, I'm still way behind 380. So, I and here's another thing that I really hesitate to bring up. <laughs> I'm actually trying to read those books. <laughs> there is no that is the definition of boring video claim <laughs> reading the books. But there, it's interesting. There's good backstory. That's yeah. actually the job I may want. Like if 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 
I get let go from being a Christian movie reviewer. I may try to apply to be a, a fake book writer for the Elder Scrolls series. A Skyrim book author, Paul AC. What would your What would your Skyrim book author name be? Adnatus Parthirior. Excellent. I look forward to your upcoming tome. All righty. Well, that about does it for pop culture with fanboy and know-it-all, at least for this episode. Tune in next time to see what uh, insane pathways we will we will blaze. Quite literally, we are in Colorado. <laughs> Lumberjack. I'm just kidding. I don't want to get Paul in any trouble with any potential employers. We're not yes! here. Yeah. Except trails. No doobies. Marijuana references! We're going to get an explicit rating. It's like one oh of my, my favorite Rocket jokes of all times where he like accidentally mentions liquor and then he pretends to be the audience. Liquor reference. He is act is drowning in liquor and he is King Poseidon. And that's it. Yep. yep. Okay. I'm going to sign us off. That's the show's done. That's it. We're done. We're For now. We'll for now. Back. We'll be back. Uh, that's it. You can always catch up us catch up with us on the Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. Until next time, we'll catch you on the flip side. Bye.